Welcome back to the Eater Upsell podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Over the weekend, Jonathan Gold passed. Jonathan was a legendary Los Angeles-based food critic, a Pulitzer-winning writer, widely credited with um, being one of the people who was telling people to go eat at restaurants that were not just the fancy restaurants in their city and, and go explore other populations and communities through their food. Uh, today, even Rock, just trying new things. Even just trying normal, new things. Yeah. Today, I am joined by one of Jonathan's contemporaries, our very own Robert Sitzma, who you may know from the podcast, who is our, our and, and all of his writing, who is our senior critic and whose career, uh, at least in the later stages, writing about these restaurants uh, in a way resembles Jonathan's. Is that fair to say? It's certainly fair to say. Yeah, he had a big influence on me. So Robert's going to tell us a little bit about their relationship, what it was like when Jonathan moved to New York. Um, Peter Meehan, who was the editor of the now deceased Lucky Peach, is going to call in and Robert, Peter, and Jonathan took a legendary trip to Kansas City one time, and, and Peter's going to talk to us about his relationship with Jonathan. And then our own Megan McCarran is going to call in, talk about what Jonathan meant to meant to her. But, you know, we're just going to have some have some fun, share some memories, and uh, and explain why it is so important for you to know who Jonathan Gold was and how everything he did is so impactful in the world, the landscape today. And why we're so busted up about his death. Jonathan is an amazing guy who grew up in Los Angeles. He, his father was a parole officer. His mother was a housewife. He, uh, he studied music and became a cello virtuoso, and that's what he studied in college. Uh, nevertheless, he had a lot of strange uh, jobs before he became a food critic, and that began when he was at the, uh, at the LA Weekly. Um, which was a publication that was owned by my publication, The Village Voice. And um, he started out there as a proofreader. But before that, when he was in college and afterwards, he did all sorts of things. Like he was in a punk rock band where he played uh, the cello, which is fantastic. I mean, I've heard tapes and they're not too bad, as he would say. And uh, he actually, one of my favorite stories about him is that he worked for Chris Burden, the performance artist. And uh, he told me once that he he loved working for Burden, uh, you know, who was who was famous for uh, for doing all sorts of masochistic stunts. Like he did one thing called "Through the Night Darkly," where he just took off his shirt and then crawled through a, a street filled with glass, lacerating himself. Anyway, uh, Jonathan had this job with him, and uh, and he really enjoyed the job until one day Chris Burden asked him if he would like to be shot in the arm, which is something that Chris Burden had been doing. He, uh, he would, they would take a gun, mount it on a thing, so no one was responsible, no, yeah. responsible, and then shoot himself in the arm, which was very painful, of course. And, of course, this was all on video in the early days of black and white video. So uh, he asked Jonathan to do that, and Jonathan said, uh, I'm leaving. And then, so. <laughs> yeah. then where did he go? Well, he he uh, started writing about music first, of course. He was famous as one of the guys that's... Uh, was one of the first to to popularize Dr. Dre and Snoop Doggy Dogg and that whole group. Or at group least write of, about them. Well, he he was with them. He was like a friend. He was in the studio when things were recorded. I mean, I remember when I was at his house once in Pasadena seeing a gold record from Dr. Dre mounted on the wall. And I'm going like, Jonathan, 
what's this doing here? Did you steal this or something? And he told me the whole story. So yeah, he was uh, he was a jack of all trades and had many different things that he did or contemplated doing before he became a restaurant critic. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, fairly far into his tenure where he started out, you know, writing uh, – doing proofreading and stuff like that and then wrote about music and eventually wrote about food. He invented the slug, as they called it, counterculture and started writing his weekly column under that name. A path not dissimilar to yours, right? Um, I think all... Minus the Critics of our generation artists. have. Yeah, I have. I was in a rock band. I did all sorts of things. I was a secretary. Uh, I was a photo editor. Um, but I think all critics... Back then, they came to it by uh, kind of strange paths and the reason was that there was no such job that anyone called a job. I mean there were not schools teaching criticism and teaching about food. There was no like food department like there is at NYU today started by Marion Nestle. I mean there was – you know, people had to get the idea that you could do this as a job and nobody ever had that idea before. So you had to fall into it. You know, and the way it happened was you would be working at some publication and they would say to you, hey, the food critic, he just ran off to Mexico. What, you know, do you want to be the food critic? And then someone would say, oh, I don't know how to do that. And then they'd say, do you want to be the food critic? So <laughs> I assume that's how he got the job. And then someone would say, well, I just drove 30 miles last night to go to a taco truck. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And one of his most famous pieces, of course, was that early piece about Pico Boulevard and eating every single taco on Pico Boulevard. So when, um, did, you, when did you first meet? I met him... Uh, well, that's an interesting story. I don't know. Should I tell the whole story? That's well, kind we, of a boring you, uh, story. It's, it's in my If you go piece. back in our, in, our, in our podcast history, uh, if you find the Robert Seisman episode, he, you, you tell the story oh, of, uh, of how he used to – how he, he told you that he had called you requesting – That's right. Yes. Uh, I won't tell that story again. He, he called requesting a subscription to my fanzine down the hatch, which I laboriously had to stuff in envelopes and mail off – affixing the stamps myself to the 300 hapless subscribers. And he wanted to be one of those subscribers. And he called from Los Angeles. And I didn't know who he was. And I said... I don't want to stuff another envelope. I'm not going to stuff another envelope. I mean, I I appreciate it, but you just don't need to know what's going on in New York. (laughs) And it turned out he did. uh, And then eventually... I I went out there and he was very really nice to me and uh, and showed me around uh, and I got to see his house in Pasadena and uh, and we became friends gradually after that especially after he moved to New York City in 1999 so mm-hmm. I probably met him in person in 98 or maybe 97 or something. What was it like to be friends with him? Uh, it was just wonderful. I mean, he was the nicest guy, although frenetically busy all the time. So um, when he would come to New York, I would know because I would read his list on, uh, you know, on the Beard Award nominees or something and know that he would be in town during a certain time. And, uh, and I would aggressively, you know, try to hook up with him somewhere. Uh, other times, you know, I would go to Los Angeles and hang out with him. So he w- was great as a friend, but he's one of those friends that always leave you wanting more. So we're going to get to his time in New York and the time you guys spent a lot of time together. But first, we have our first uh, our first guest. Uh, Peter Meehan is calling in. Um, what was what was their relationship like? Um, I actually introduced them. Uh, 
Peter contacted me. I was friends with Peter, and he uh, he wanted to get hold of gold. Of course, he wanted to get gold into Lucky Peach. So, uh, and gold was more than ready. I mean, he admired the publications. So, uh, Meehan contacted me, and I contacted Gold, and eventually we set up a uh, and just under the pretense of us hanging out together. That was the beauty of Lucky Peach, as you could imagine all sorts of projects, and then they would just happen. Uh, Improbable things that maybe nobody even wanted to read about. Uh, But we decided that the three of us were going to get together and talk about the state of food. And we didn't know where we would get together, but I thought, well, gee, it should be like somewhere in the middle of the country. So anyway, we fixed on Kansas City, mainly because that's where Calvin Trillin was from, and he wrote about a whole bunch of places there that he claimed were the best in the world, like uh, you know, like that barbecue place, Arthur Bryant's. So it was just the three of you guys in Kansas City? It was Kansas just City? the three of us in Kansas City for half a week, in a car, driving around, eating everything that Calvin Trillin had eaten you know, 40 years before, <laughs> and, uh, and talking about it. It was like crazy. It was the kind of crazy project that Lucky Peach became famous for. But that started a friendship between, uh, between Meehan and Gold, uh, and partly fueled by Meehan's uh, sending him on more and more interesting assignments. And, uh, and also, they really got together. Uh, so. Thank you so much for doing this. We're just kind of telling some stories. Robert was just opened the story of you three meeting in, in Kansas City. Um, I was hoping you guys could just kind of talk about it. Well, yeah, it was a con. And I mean, Robert was in <laughs> on it. Um, Oops. And that's how I became friends with Jonathan Gold. I'd known Robert for a number of years. We knew each other in New York. I was a fan of Jonathan's work from afar, but I didn't know him personally. And I and I don't know why, but at some point it seemed like it would be worthwhile me knowing Jonathan. And and so I, I proposed this ruse to Robert uh, where the three of us would go somewhere on my uh, independent magazine's extensive travel budget <laughs> and hang out. And thereby I would have an opportunity to try to make friends with gold. And Robert bless him, picked Kansas City, which I could actually afford to put us in for a few days. And the three of us went there kind of on the trail of, of, of Calvin Trillin with the uh, extant or stated purpose that we would be exploring the, the, the question of what is American food. But it was honestly just a setup for me to try to make friends with Jonathan Gold at work. <laughs> so I, I owe it to Robert. What was that? What was the trip like? You know, it, well, we were there for three or four days or something. And... Robert was there first. He got the car, and then he picked me up from the airport, and we had a couple hours until we were going to go get Jonathan. And I thought it would be wise to buy a bottle of Weller and a flask so we could be sipping whiskey the entire time. (laughs) And so we outfitted ourselves thusly. We ate some terrible barbecue at some forgettable place right after that. And then we went to the airport and got gold. And we spent three days just stuffing ourselves, you know, at a lot of... At a lot of the places that Trillin had written about in, like, 74. Or was the <laughs> essay earlier than that, Robert? I think that's about right. No, maybe 68. Yeah, maybe 68, and it was collected in that first anthology of his writing in 74. Of the Tummy Trilogy. And he, he would always uh, talk in s- superlatives. He would say, you know, Arthur Bryant's is obviously the best barbecue in the world. And so we had a chance to test that out. The thing that I learned, I mean, I had read 
some trillin obviously as a a young uh, up and coming food writer trying to get my 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 paws wet but it was <laughs> the thing that i saw in motion uh with with you and jonathan and and the reason we ended up there was because trillin changed the dialogue in america about food cuz he didn't say that it was the best barbecue in america at arthur bryant he said arthur bryant's is the best restaurant in america and it was a <laughs> it was a it was an insane proclamation of the time to say that this place where you wait in line and get your food on a tray was the best restaurant. You know, it wasn't some snooty French place in New York. It was the, you know, that the, the everyday idiomatic pleasures of a city are its greatest culinary treasure. It's not the, the purple palaces with their overwritten menus. And part of his ploy was that, uh, in those days, no one would check out Arthur Bryant's to see if he was telling the truth. I mean, those were the days before food travel became an end in itself. I mean, so it was hilarious that 40 years later, we're like heading out to test his proposition. <laughs> but I think the idea of that, like, and I mean, you can speak to this, but I think it inspired both you and Jonathan and your exploration of food, that it wasn't just that you had to look to the people who were doing the, you know, the Michelin best restaurants. Do you think that Trillin inspired both of you? Oh, God, yes. Uh, Trillin probably was the first person who uh, proved that it was possible to write about vernacular food, who was so interested in vernacular food that he would just write about, you know, a sandwich from a deli on the corner or a, or a hot dog or a sand, you know, something from some small town in Indiana. I mean, he, you know, he chose this, this plebeian food as his obsession. And that's what kindled the interest of both Jonathan and I in just going to these small ma and pop places and uh, checking out meals that cost $3 instead of $300. And I liked how both of you spoke about how you wrote about eating as much as you wrote about food, that it was, it was the kind of, uh, I'll, I'll use a very today word, but possibly use it wrong, intersectional aspect of, of eating that was interesting to you. It wasn't just documenting, you know, which condiments were on that that sandwich from the deli at the corner, but it was who was making it and who was buying it and what that human transaction was. And I think that that's what always inspired me about his writing and about your writing and why it was so cool to get to corner you guys there, you know, with a flask and a pile of frings and, uh, and get to ask those questions. Well, don't forget that you yourself were carrying the heavy torch at places like the New York Times. You were writing about similar food and uh, all of us were kind of in a big food love, love fest there in Kansas City. That was so much fun. Uh, and we had such a good time just like doing what we do best, which is sitting in cars and eating food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the same way that I feel about um, the bands that I've gotten to play in, which is that I don't really have a place in them. Uh, like I felt, you know, oh, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Uh, can I? Can you give me five minutes? I'm just doing a phone call for work. Daddy, okay. I just want a little bit of food. I'll get you food in five minutes. Yeah. I will cook you some food in five minutes. Okay, John. You can watch your iPad until then. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry, a little negotiation with the four-year-old. All right, I'm back. I've, I've sated the child. I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> no problem. How is Arthur Bryant's? Arthur Bryant's, and so. When we went, okay, the first play we was Oklahoma Joe's, and that's like a very famous Casey um, 
barbecue place and I thought that their ribs were a little too soft and I expressed it in a non <laughs> in a, in an uncareful way uh perhaps using expletives and just being a you know punk and Jonathan really swatted me down but about, being being cor- being correct you know you were right the ribs were not that good right but Jonathan took took serious umbrage with my phrasing of it cuz he's like these are not the ribs you want, but the way that you're talking about it, you make it sound like they've made a mistake, which they haven't. They've executed the ribs that they want. So we, there was a good dialectic about uh, about barbecue style and practice and what we want, and you know. So that's going on. We go to Arthur Bryant's in the first night, and everyone is basically just like, "This is not good. This is bad." Um, <laughs> so we went back the next day in the way that professionals would do, and had a, a much better. Uh, Arthur Bryan's experience. But I think that the best barbecue we ate when we were in town was at that place called LC's, which was like in a converted kind of gas station auto shop. Do you remember that was one of the last places we ate on that trip? Oh, God, yes. I was just looking through the photographs from it last night. And man, that place was great. Was, they they yeah. cooked the ribs in this kind of hole, literal hole in the wall. The place was fantastic. It was just, it was the best barbecue we ate at. And God knows it's probably not there anymore. And was that the last time all of us ate together? No. That was the last time all of us ate together ever. Wow. I ended up kind of orienting my life towards going out to Los Angeles as frequently as possible and, and spending ginormous swaths of time with gold. And then Robert and I live in the same city, so we can you know, often make it happen here. But... What was the last time you and Jonathan ate together? I was so fortunate that I was able to catch him at the last Beard Journalism Awards, which was at the end of April. And uh, he was here with his whole family, and I hadn't seen his whole family together. You know, his son Leon um, and his daughter Isabel, along with Lori. And, uh, and they came over to my house, and Jonathan sat in the, in the big chair and we drank some wine, and uh, it started to rain, and he borrowed some umbrellas, and then we walked down Bleecker Street to get to Old Tbilisi Garden, which is a Georgian restaurant. Uh, whenever he comes to New York City, I would always try to uh, take him to a restaurant that they didn't have a good example of in Los Angeles. And that place that night, thank God, it was so on <laughs> that he was kind of abashed by how good it was. Now, I've had mediocre meals there, but in this case, man, everything was great. The lula kebab, which is like ground onion rife lamb, it's wrapped in this flatbread and then grilled again, was just succulent. Uh, I hate that word. It was, uh, it was <laughs> tasty. It was, <laughs> and it was just, it was fantastic. And, and Leon was really on. I mean, he looked like his dad. He was wearing, you know, a black leather jacket and talking incessantly about science and math at a level that we could barely understand. <laughs> I know. He's so. really, he's like gotten into the stratosphere with, with, with his knowledge. Um, I think it was the years of wearing a NASA t-shirt just rubbed off on him, but but I know that feeling of, of being happy that the, uh, the restaurant performed well because I saw Jonathan uh, for breakfast uh, on that trip when he got into town and I took him down to Wu's Wonton King and, and things were like pretty good, but there was one dumpling that Jonathan like paused and he was like, it was the, the they do a pan fried uh, dumpling that's got like uh, 
uh, spinach and shrimp inside of it. Um, and it's just, it's one of their better dumplings. And, and he paused and called it out. And I know that our Cantonese food is not as good as Cantonese food they have in Los Angeles, but it was good to have a, a showing that was at least worth pausing and paying attention to. But then I took him around and we walked around and looked at some art galleries together and and it wasn't like the best selection of shows happening at the time. And, you know, you always <laughs> feel, you know, like with Jonathan, there was always that kind of understated or explicitly stated thing about is L.A. or New York better? And whenever your version of New York didn't show as well as you wanted to, you're always like, God damn it, because, you know, the next time he picks you up in his truck, he's going to take you to a place that blows your mind with, you know, from food from a city in China that no one has ever actually written the name down of and, you know, that whole thing, so. Or just the best goat birria that you've ever had in your life. Right, and that was the first meal you had with him, right? When you went out to L.A.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was the thing I think he was proudest of, his uh, understanding of the food of East L.A. You know, I mean, the Mexican food and the Chinese food are the two things that show off best uh, Los Angeles. And I delighted in the succeeding 20 years of, uh, of finding places in New York that, uh, that they didn't have in Los Angeles and then rubbing his uh, congenial face in them. <laughs> uh, so, but you're right. We, we always had kind of performance anxiety around Jonathan right. where we didn't know if what we were uh, taking him to was as good as the equivalent or even a different thing in Los Angeles. When you when you delivered a clunker when he he came to town and you and you really just dropped the ball, how would he react? Uh, with, with with understanding, he was an impossibly kind man, you know. Yeah, he, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and so it was never, it was it was, I don't know. It was always in good fun because he never was going to believe that New York was a better place to eat than L.A. Um, and there were certainly times that you know. You, you would go to restaurants with him. You felt, I felt worse when I went to a restaurant with him in Los Angeles and it did poorly because mm. you were kind of just like, guys, this is, this is the time where you, you do the good job because <laughs> the, the guy with the red hair is at the table and you know who he is and you know what he does. So not that he was, but he also, as a critic, I don't think saw great value in tearing restaurants down. You know, I think that he thought, you know, outside of restaurants at a certain level of the economic spectrum that could take a spanking, that that his job was to 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 explicate what they were doing to give you a chance to understand how you might eat there and how you might experience it, and 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 that was his goal. So he was not he was very rarely cruel. But you bring up a point that's an interesting thing I kind of hadn't thought about before. But he. Um the most interesting times was when you actually went with him to a place that he had to review. I think out of the times I went out with him to eat, about 90% of the times he was showing off Los Angeles because he was so proud of it and he wanted to show you a place that would kick your ass. Right. So, uh, so but I remember on a few occasions when I would go to a place that he had to go to where he was doing a review that was due like in a day or two and sometimes those places weren't so good and he would become mournful. Yeah, it was, it was always a how he was going to explain, you know, what the restaurant was doing. Um, but it was always, I remember one time I went to a restaurant with him that he was reviewing. They knew it was him. And if you're going out with a critic, generally, you're just there to be a mouth. Like, that's your job. You know, maybe you have an opinion, but you're there to have food put in front of you. 
and when we went to this restaurant that he was reviewing, I kind of looked for, you know, there was like a $32 chicken that sounded super boring on the menu. And so I thought I would order that, which is like halfway of a dick move because that's not obviously the dish that the restaurant is most proud of. But at the same time, I'm like, let's see what you can do with some chicken. Um, and when they brought it to the table, instead of bringing the $32 like museum lady chicken salad plate, they brought a whole roasted bird on a Garadon that had like foie gras stuffed inside of it and truffles and everything. And, and I remember <laughs> they, they roll this thing up to the table, you know, and I'm getting ready to tee off on their museum lady chicken. And then they roll this thing up to the table and I say to the server, I'm like, is this the $32 chicken? And like the, the silence that filled the entire <laughs> restaurant when I called them on the bullshit of swapping out a dish on Jonathan's review visit was so, uh, like, yeah, so cutting. And I was like, God, I really should just <laughs> take it easier on these people. But, but it wasn't that that Jonathan got mad. He wasn't mad at me, but afterwards he told me that I had been um, imperious with the wine steward. And, and I took umbrage at that idea until I realized that no one would ever accuse you of being imperious with a wine steward and be inaccurate because it's such a beautifully chosen combination of words that makes you sound like such a, you know, kind of like prancing <laughs> asshole. And, and he just <laughs> nailed me with it. So, so that was, I don't know, one of, one of the many times we went out. From the time that you had decided I'm going to be friends with gold, uh, through the years in LA, how did your relationship change with him? Well, again, and it still goes, it's the same thing for, for Robert, but you know, I got into writing about food. I felt like I fell ass backwards into it. I didn't go to school. I just like got handed a column at the New York times and suddenly I had a career. So I've never felt quite worthy of the opportunities that have come my way. And with Jonathan, you know, we left that trip and I'm like, I don't know, it's like, I think I'm insane. I had like four questions prepared for a four day interview and a flask with me. And then, <laughs> uh, but then I would go to LA and I would kind of sheepishly, you know, text him or email and be like, hey, I'm going to be in town. Do you have time for a meal? And, and it became clear on the first or second visit that all of my meals, usually except for breakfast, um, would be eaten with Jonathan and... We kept that up for like five or six years. And it, it got to a point where I remember one time I came back from a meeting because you go to LA to have, you know, pointless meetings with pointless people. And I got back to my hotel and we were texting. And he's like, are you up for dinner? You know, it was the, the charade we always played was asking each other if we wanted to eat with each other because we always did. And, and he's like, yep, I'm, you know, I'm game to go whenever. And I said, great, well, I can go whenever. And he said, great, well, I'm parked outside of your hotel, so why don't you just come outside? So, you know, there was like a de facto uh, uh, getting together thing that was really fun. You know, and I got to know his family really well. I traveled to Copenhagen with them and we spent a day at Tivoli. And for the rest of the summer, when I made up stories to put my daughter to bed, it always had to be about her and Izzy and sneaking into Tivoli Gardens at night. The last time I went to Los Angeles, the first meal we ate together was at Kisbaka, which is one of uh, Nancy Silverton's restaurants. And the golds were half an hour late, which was not unusual given the, <laughs> you know, Jonathan having deadlines and Lori working herself to death constantly. So I was there a little bit early and went across the street to one of those Ludo places to have a cocktail. And when I came back, the golds were seated and it was a, a five top right in the center of the restaurant. And... 
Izzy and uh, Leon were there. And when I sat down, Lori just said, welcome home. And it was like the warmest feeling I'd ever had sitting down at a table in my entire life. So, the, you know, in the course of six or seven years, Gold went from a guy who I liked from afar to someone who was, you know, practically, you know, was my L.A. family. What was it like with, with him in Copenhagen? Like, what was your take on him writing the Noma pieces? I, well, I conned him into going the first time by getting him to come to, you know, I was helping to organize MAD, which is the food conference that Redzepi has over there right. one year. And, uh, and I kind of cajoled Jonathan into coming and doing it one year. So that was cool. And then, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that international criticism has a place in, even regional restaurant writing because it, it, it in the same way that it's important to consider the birria restaurant it's important to consider the restaurant where where people are are doing like what renee does for food which is insane you know but it, it's it's like a high art practice you know but it's on the same right. spectrum it's still food we eat around a table so i think that you know that's the other thing for as celebrated as jonathan was for his embrace of like, you know, idiomatic everyday foods from around the world. He was also incredibly, incredibly well versed and really good at, at at judging the the highest ends of cuisine. And I think that that is another thing that he was. The things that he was fluent in are almost impossible to list. He knows everything about opera. He knows everything about like gangster rap in Southern California. You know, like, and he knew everything about fine dining, and he knew half of everything about most of the cuisines in the world. Any other stories you want to pass off before you head to uh, cook some food for your right. child? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the chance to tell these. I just, uh, yeah, it's a loss. And I don't know, uh, you know, going to L.A. I mean, I was there last week while he was sick. And I knew when I was going back to the airport uh, that he wasn't going to be there the next time. I was in Los Angeles and, you know, as an Irish Catholic man, I don't cry, you know, ever. And, and I, you know, kind of bawled my way through the Uber ride, which I think was pretty uncomfortable for the guy. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge loss. It's a huge loss, uh, like for people who never knew him, who just grew up reading his reviews. And to those of us who knew him, you know, he was like a really incredibly kind, generous, funny guy who was fun to hang out with. And, even if he wasn't Jonathan Gold, you know, losing that guy in the world, certainly, certainly sad. Thank you so much for uh, for calling in. We appreciate it. No, no problem. All right, Tietzma, you and I have a date for some Goldschlager at some point in Remembrance, right? You bet. All right. Thanks. So, yeah, what was it like when uh, when when Gold moved to New York to work at to work at Gourmet? I was just delighted that he was moving here, and um, and also feeling like I was suddenly in the in the club with people that I knew taking over gourmet. It was like a coup. <laughs> and having both Lori and Jonathan come here was just such a delight. And uh, I quickly became kind of Jonathan's sidekick. You know, I would spend all day doing my own job at the Village Voice, going to restaurants, and then I would uh, wait for him on a windy corner of the West Village. And he would come come up kind of rushing up a few minutes late, a few 
half hours late. And we would get in a cab and, and go to some really fancy restaurant. And I'd never had that much experience in fancy restaurants. And uh, everything I know about fancy restaurants comes from going out with Jonathan Gold. And, uh, and I've since learned that I like non-fancy restaurants a lot better. But, uh, but just the amount of time you sit – and of course, he quickly became recognized. Uh, he was so distinctive with his like shoulder length, strawberry blonde hair kind of blowing all around his face uh, and uh, in his affable manner and his ponder- pondering food. He, you know, he studied food like it was – like he was a, uh, some sort of – what's a person that studies butterflies? A leptologist? A lept- he studied food like <laughs> other people studied, studies butterflies. When Jonathan – died over the weekend you you heard from countless of your of your friends and and former coworkers yeah it was really amazing people i hadn't heard from in a decade ever since gourmet closed down uh, i got the news originally from uh, ruth rachel mm-hmm. who called me from italy but within the next few days i just received text messages of consolation and uh, and calls from friends who used to work at gourmet and uh, and other mutual friends of jonathan's who had uh, sometimes only shared a single meal with him years before and were suddenly like just galvanized into like feeling the sense of loss that, you know, that we've lost one of the greatest food writers uh, of our age. You said one of your form- – not she wasn't your editor, was she? Well, yeah. she was during part of the time I wrote for Gourmet, uh, Nanette Maxim, uh, who originally hails from, uh, from near Syracuse, New York, a small town despite mm-hmm. her very French-sounding name. But she was just an absolutely great writer and editor and she um, – she, Refused to talk on microphone about Jonathan, but offered us a couple of uh, interesting anecdotes, which kind of give you the the feeling of what it was like to work with him as an editor rather than to be a friend or to be an associate. And she was his editor while he was in New York at Gourmet. Y- yes, during uh, during I'd say the second two thirds of his tenure, mm-hmm. he was uh, she was his editor. And editors had their own unique relationship with Jonathan, right? Oh yeah, uh, it, it's something that uh, Ruth Reith, Rachel touched on it. She wrote a very nice piece about about him. But one of the things she touched on was his fame for turning in copy late. And uh, and once she'd opened the floodgates there, uh, it was possible for Nanette to mention that too and how, you know, he was such a wonderful guy that in the end you didn't really care. Nanette Maxim says, There are hundreds of things I could say about Jonathan who with Lori, then my executive editor, of course, Lori Ochoa is his wife and the executive editor at uh, Gourmet at the time, defined so much about the early days of my gourmet years from 2000 to 2007. I loved them from the first day when they invited me out to lunch, some new French place on 6th Avenue, where we ate not-so-great roast chicken and talked about what gourmet could be as a voice for the people that produced that chicken, the farmers who nobody was then covering at a food magazine. Jonathan, as anyone who's ever worked with him knows, was notorious for being late with his copy, unlike you, Robert. (laughs) <laughs> but he knew my soft spot, which was always a soft spot for him, being a cellist and music lover. I had studied flute, saxophone, and electric bass. We talked about music. He compared food to music with operatic references and rap references, and maybe you didn't know exactly, but you got the point. So just when I was ready to have a breakdown, he'd turn up not with his copy, but with a CD of some music that he knew I'd love. 
Once he slipped a copy of the Emerson String Quartet's boxed Haydn project onto my desk. And it took me a while, but I realized it was a metaphor for the way he wrote. Like the movement within Opus 33, number two, that's nicknamed The Joke. From the record sleeve, it says, quote, For its finale, whose coda is punctuated by several fake endings, general pauses of increasing length designed to tempt the audience into premature applause. To make its full effect, this joke depends on watching the players sit in frozen silence, unquote. In other words, it ain't here yet, but when it arrives, it's going to kill you. And it always did. Megan McCarran is here. Hi, Megan. Hi. Hey, Megan. Hey, Robert. Nice to hear from you. Nice to hear from you, too. I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you so much. So, Megan, you, you wrote something uh, really beautiful on, on Monday, talking about the way that Jonathan Gold affected your understanding of L.A. and understanding of food. I don't it, know. Do you it want was to just... a beautiful piece. Thank you. I was really, really sad when I found out Jonathan Gold had died. And it was a real privilege to be able to, you know, sit down and and get to write about what his writing meant to me and what it meant to L.A., which is a city I have lived in twice. Um, I lived here in 2005, 2006, right after college, very different phase of my life. And then I moved back in 2015, where I've lived here ever since. You know, you could almost make an augmented reality experience of Los Angeles that shows you everywhere Jonathan Gold was. You know, as he wrote so eloquently, it's full of a ton of tiny little communities that are really cooking for and opening businesses for and and talking to each other a lot of the time. And I, you know, I don't think what Jonathan Gold did was put these places on a map because they were usually very known to their communities. But what he did was create a map of Los Angeles and like who is in Los Angeles and what is important about Los Angeles through its food and let the whole city kind of take a step back from its very postmodern, you know, kind of wonderful, but also very dense and intricate landscape and, and see at least a bit more about how everything fit together. And what have you, what have you seen in terms of reactions and anything yeah, anything surprise you? He was important to so many people's idea of the city and almost to their own identity. When Anthony Bourdain died, a lot of people talked about how he, everyone felt like they were his friend. And I think with Jonathan Gold, everyone in Los Angeles feels like they've had dinner with him, even if they haven't, because they've read his work and his work is so evocative of what he experienced when he was eating somewhere, you are now eating. And he used um, the second person a great deal, which a lot of very smart writers have written about um, in the wake of his passing. It wasn't, I am eating this abalone flown in, you know, from Hong Kong yesterday, but you are eating this abalone flown in and we are enjoying it together. So, um, you know, I think everyone is missing a dinner that either they were lucky enough to actually share with him or they felt like they did through his work. Great point. And I, I love that you've tied together uh, Bourdain and Gold. They t- are two very different sides of the food world and our perception of it. I mean, to me, I can't stop thinking about it, in part because um, there, there's a pat 
version of this phrase and a complicated version. And I'm saying in the complicated way where, you know, food writers, especially of my generation, are sort of losing father figures this summer. And I mean that in a complicated way. And, um, you know, hopefully food writing is expanded beyond people who would even, you know, sort of choose one of these men as someone who they felt like, you know, a lineage with. But um, as someone who's lost her own father, this is like both these losses have hit me incredibly hard in a way that I was not remotely prepared for. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised by, and maybe I shouldn't be, but so yeah, I, it feels, it feels linked, linked to me, to people whose work really inspired me, who were both sort of men of the generation, my father's age. Bourdain tried to bring a lot of the world together and Gold tried to bring a, the whole city together. Like in a sense, they were doing different the same thing on a different scale. They were kind of digesting the world for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, another thing that hasn't been mentioned a lot yet, and I didn't really, um, n- you know, f- know to touch on in, in my piece, but um, the documentary City of Gold, the end of it really hinges on the 1992 LA uprising and the sense of extreme fracturedness that the city had and sort of the narrative... Um, in the late 80s and early 90s, that maybe all this uh, quote-unquote diversity in Los Angeles, both, you know, the longtime Black community and all the newer immigrant communities, um, I mean, and the longtime, you know, decade, like, generations upon generations of Mexican-Americans, um, maybe that diversity was dangerous, you know, maybe it made the city a powder keg, and Gold was one of the people who is from LA, you know, saw that uprising occur and also wrote through it and was one of there's like a sort of a lost memory now of how many writers in Los Angeles tried to find a way to help knit the city back together and and do their piece and I think he was a huge part of also folding black Los Angeles back into the story of the city can we have can we declare a John Gold day like what what Megan what do you want to see people do (laughs) Um, get off the subway somewhere. Yeah, I think, you know, go somewhere you've been meaning to go for a long time, but maybe avoided because you thought you would be out of place or you might not know what to order or you might just feel, you know, not wanting to step out of your skin that day. You know, go have a, a new meal with some, some new people and some old friends. Yeah, here in New York, it's so easy. You just have to uh, leave your phone at home, get on any subway line, go to the end of the line and eat in the first place you see. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. All right. So, Robert, do you have anything you know anything you want to say uh, in closing? Um, only that, despite all we've said about Jonathan, I mean, the way Hamas and most is is a friend. He was a close friend, and I just I'm not going to get over it anytime soon. <laughs>